You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Chapter 2, Part B, Escape. An emergency flash broadcast over the world. It meant that the news service had been commandeered. This flashing signal was calling to the peoples of the earth. What catastrophe did this herald? Had it to do with the dark moon? Not since the uprising of the mole-men, those creatures who had spewed forth from the inner world, had the fiery crystal called. It seemed to Harkness that Schwartzmann was hours in reaching the switch. A voice came shouting into the room. "'By order of the Stratosphere Control Board,' it commanded, "'all traffic is forbidden above the forty level. Liners take warning. Descend at once.' Over and over it repeated the command, an order whose authority could not be disregarded. In his inner vision Harkness saw the tumult in the skies, the swift dropping of huge liners and great carriers of fast freight, the scurrying of other craft to give clearance to these monsters, whose terrific speed must be slowly checked. But why? What had happened? What could warrant such disruption of the traffic of the world? His tensed muscles were aching unheeded. His sense of feeling seemed lost, so intently was he waiting for some further word. "'Emergency news report,' said another voice. And Harkness strained every faculty to hear. "'Highline ships attacked by unknown foe. Three passenger carriers of the North Polar Short Line reported crashed. Incomplete warnings from their commanders indicate they were attacked. Patrol ship has spotted one crash. They have landed beside it and are reporting. "'The report is in. It is almost beyond belief.' They say the liner is empty, that no human body, alive or dead, is in the ship. She was stripped of crew and passengers in the air. We await confirmation. Danger apparently centered over Arctic regions, but traffic has been ordered from all upper levels. The voice that had been held rigidly to the usual calm clarity of an official announcer became suddenly high-pitched and vibrant. "'Stand by!' it shouted. An S.O.S. is coming in. We will put it through our amplifiers. Give it to you direct. The newscaster crackled and hissed. They were waving all technical niceties at R.N. headquarters, Harkness knew. The next voice came clearly, the next voice came clearly though a trifle faint. Air Patrol, help! Position 82, 14 north, 93, 20 east. Superliner number 87G, flying at R.A. plus 7. We are attacked. Air Patrol, Air Patrol, 82, 14 North, 93, 20. The voice that was repeating the position was lost in a pandemonium of cries. Then, Monsters! the voice was shouting. They have seized the ship. They are tearing at our ports. A hissing crash ended in silence. Tearing at our ports, Harkness was filled with a blinding nausea as he sensed what had come with the crash. The opening ports, the outrush of air released to the thin atmosphere of those upper levels, earth pressure within the cabins of the ship, then, in an instant, none. Every man, every woman, and child on the giant craft had died instantly. The announcer had resumed, but above the sound was a guttural voice that shouted hoarsely in accents of dismay. "'Eighty-seven G!' Schwartzmann was exclaiming. "'Mein Gott! It is our own ship!' the Alaskan, our crack flyer. Harkness heard him but an instant, for another thought was hammering at his brain. The position, the ship's position. It was almost above his experimental plant. And Chet was there, and the ship? 
What had Chet said? He would fly it in two days, and this was the second day. Chet had no radio news. No instrument had been installed in the shop. They had depended upon the one in Harkness's own ship. And now— Walt Harkness's clear understanding had brought a vision that was sickening. So plainly had he glimpsed the scene of terror in that distant cabin. And now he saw with equal clarity another picture. There was Chet, smiling, unafraid, proud of their joint accomplishment and of the gleaming metal shape that he was lifting carefully from its bed. He was floating it out to the open air. He was taking off, and up, up where some horror awaited. "'Monsters!' that thin voice had cried in a tone that was vibrant with terror. What could it be? Great ships out of space? An invasion? Or beasts? But Harkness's vision failed him there. He knew only that a fast ship was moored just outside. He had planned vaguely to seize it. He had needed it for his own escape. But he needed it a thousand times more desperately now. Chet might have been delayed, and he must warn him. The thoughts were flashing like hot sparks through his brain as he leaped. He bore the heavier body of Schwartzmann to the floor. He rained smashing blows upon him, with a furious frenzy that would not be curbed. The weapon with its deadly detonite bullet came toward him. In the same burst of fury he tore the weapon from the hand that held it, then sprang to his feet to stand wild-eyed and panting as he aimed the pistol at the cursing man and dragged him to his feet. "'The ship,' he said between heavy breaths. "'The ship. Take me to it. You will tell anyone we meet it is all right. One word of alarm, one wrong look, and I'll blow you to hell and make a break for it.' The pistol under Harkness's silken jacket was pressed firmly into Schwartzmann's side. It brought them safely past excited guards and out into the storm. It held steady until the men had fought their way through blasts of rain to the side of the anchored ship. Not till then did Schwartzmann speak. "'Wait,' he said. "'Are you crazy, Harkness? You can never take off. The trees are close. A straight ascent is needed. And the wind—' He struggled in the other's grasp as Harkness swung open the cabin door, his fear of what seemed a certain death overmastering his fear of the weapon. He was shouting for help as Harkness threw him roughly aside and leaped into the ship. Outside Harkness saw running figures as he threw on the motors. A pistol's flash came sharply through the storm and dark. A window in the chateau flashed into brilliance to frame the figure of a girl. Tall and slender, she leaned forward with outstretched arms. She seemed to be calling him. Harkness seized the controls, and knew as he did so that Schwartzmann was right. He could never lift the ship in straight ascent. Before her whirling fans could raise her, they would be crashing among the trees. But there were two helicopters, dual lift, one forward and one aft, and Walt Harkness, pilot of the second class, earned immediate disbarment, or a much higher rating, as he coolly fingered the controls. He cut the motor on the big fan at the stern, threw the forward one on full, and set the blades for maximum lift, then released the hold-down grips that moored her. The grips let go with a crashing of metal arms. The bow shot upward, while a blast of wind tore at the stubby wings. The slim ship tried to stand erect. Another furious beating wind lifted her bodily, as Harkness, clinging desperately within the narrow room, threw his full weight upon the lever that he held. The full blast of a detonite motor on even a small ship is terrific, and the speedster of Herr Schwartzmann did not lack for power. Small wonder that the rules of the Board of Control prohibit the use of the stern blast under one thousand feet. 
The roaring inferno from the stern must have torn the ground as if by a mammoth plough. The figures of men must have scattered like leaves in a gusty wind. The ship itself was racked and shuddering with the impact of the battering thrust, but it rose like a rocket, though canted on one wing, and the crashing branches of wind-torn trees marked its passage on a long, curving slant that bent upward into the dark. Within the control room, Walter Harkness grinned happily as he drew his bruised body from the place where he had been thrown, and brought the ship to an even keel. Nice work, but there was other work ahead, and the smile of satisfaction soon passed. He held the nose up, and the wireless warning went out before as the wild climb kept on. Forty thousand was passed, then fifty and more, a hundred thousand, and at length he was through the repelling area, that zone of mysterious force above which was a magnetic repulsion nearly neutralizing gravity. He could fly level now. Every unit of force could be used for forward flight to hurl him onward faster and faster into the night. Harkness was flying where his license was void. He was flying, too, where all aircraft were banned. But the rules of the Board of Control meant nothing to him this night, nor did the valuable and sulfurous orders to halt that a patrol ship flashed north. The patrol ship was on station. She was lost far astern before she could gather speed for pursuit. Walter Harkness had caught his position upon a small chart. It was a sphere, and he led a thin wire from the point that was Vienna to a dot that he marked on the subpolar waist. He dropped a slender pointer upon the wire and engaged its grooved tip, and then the flying was out of his hands. The instrument before him, with its light bulbs and swift-moving discs, would count their speed of passage. It would hold the ship steadily upon an unerring course and allow for drift of winds. The great circle course was simple. The point he marked was drawing them as if it had been a magnet. Drawing them as it drew the eyes of Walt Harkness, staring strainingly ahead, as if to span the thousands of miles of dark. End of chapter 2 Part B